This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo. Today's podcast is from an interview held on November 3rd with experts that the Modern Elder Academy has brought on board to make sure that their facilities at the Saddleback Ranch are environmentally friendly and water conscious. Just a quick note, this is not the 9 November community meeting. I will post a podcast of that event as soon as I receive the raw recording. Now, here's the interview with MEA's water experts. This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and today on our podcast, we have Skylar Skikos from the Modern Elder Academy. And as you Galisteo residents know, Modern Elder Academy is located and locating at the Saddleback Ranch property. And today we're going to be talking with several experts on design, water conservation, and reclamation for that project that they're they're doing out there. Skylar, would you like to introduce your team? And welcome, welcome. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thanks, John. Uh, really, really appreciate you hosting us and having having us on this call. So, you know, th- this call really is about the design team. So I'm just going to kind of tee it up here and then really, really focus on the team. This, you know, th- this project's very important to us, and it's very important for us, and and, and honestly, me personally, for for a number of reasons, especially given given the the connections to the local area with my wife and my family from there. And it's something where we're going to be here for a very long time. And, and so it's a project that we, we intend to and want to make sure we get right. And uh, approaching it that way, you know, really our focus has been on what's right for the site. And in, in our opinion, that, that comes from having a local team that has the expertise that's been in this space, this, this geography, this market for, 20 or 30 years or, or more and has that nuance. And you know, honestly, we were just incredibly fortunate that there's a world-class team located in Santa Fe that does projects all over. And so it, it just, it made it very natural and easy to, to, to identify the, the right players involved here. And so first and foremost, we have Sean Evans with, with AOS. Um, we have Kenneth Francis with uh, Surroundings. Uh, AOS is on the, the architectural design uh, surroundings on landscaping uh, and landscape. And then Aaron English uh, from Biohabitats for the wastewater, all local and, and, and really the, the, the leaders of this. And then lastly, we can talk, uh, connect a little bit with Jan Bird, who's our uh, regenerative agriculture expert, who's assembling a local team here to look at the, uh, not the academy part, but the larger part of the site. So with that, maybe, maybe I'll hand it over to, to Sean as a lead architect to give a little bit of context for, for his experience and perspective. Great. I'm, I'm actually calling from, uh, from Las Cruces today. Uh, I'm principal of AOS Architects. We're based in Santa Fe. We have another office in Philadelphia, and we do work across the country uh, in historic preservation and in contextually appropriate new design. This has been a really extraordinary project for us, for me personally, thinking about what it means to, to be an elder of Kenneth and I uh, had the opportunity to go down to Baja uh, a number of months ago, and we're surprised to learn that we're elders, and that we're actually the kind of among the target audience. Um, Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it really is. A, it's it's, it's a, the organization is really extraordinary. And I um, was so grateful to be able to spend time in Baja and to see what an incredible institution of joy 
MEA actually is as they work with folks from, from around, around the world, around the country on their kind of transitions in, into elderhood. Um, AOS, as I mentioned, uh, we're, we're preservation experts. We're um, experts in, in local and regional design. We've, we bring our experience from places like Los Poblanos in Albuquerque, um, as well as restoration work with many of the Pueblos throughout New Mexico and around, around the region in, in regional appropriate design, uh, appropriate um, sustainability measures. And we're, we're a strong advocate for sustainability and are really excited uh, for everything that, that, we're, that we're doing with, with MEA on this project. All right, Thanks. how about Kenneth? Hello, uh, my name is Kenneth Francis and I am the owner of Surroundings. We are a Santa Fe-based landscape architecture uh, studio. We've been uh, working in the region, well, we've combined all of the principles in our office over 50 years. Um, my, my tenure started uh, in Santa Fe in uh, 2005. And, and it, it, every project has been a beautiful blessing and lesson, and, and you'll hear about this more, but so much in, in about how we uh, think about water in the Southwest and, and, um, and how we think about uh, plants and uh, flora and fauna. All, you know, all of it is a part of our, our purview to creating environments, outdoor environments for people to thrive and be inspired feel respite, comfort, and this project site in particular, one of our principals in our office worked on one of the residences 30 years ago. Uh, and so we we have this very cool continuity and lineage. She's a generation up from me. Uh, I took her out there recently. Uh, you know, we said it's like visiting an old friend to see how uh, your projects have survived over uh you know, what we see is you know, a lot of a change in the climate and plant, uh, in, in the environments uh, in the Southwest. And, um, and so this in particular, this client is really special, uh, just a different uh, kind of attitude about development that we're so excited to be a part of. You know, we work on a lot of different projects, parks, streetscapes, uh, large master planning. We do a lot of green infrastructure planning done things for the labs. Uh, and so we work with developers that don't even bring these questions uh, to us that, that um, MEA has brought uh, to really challenge us um, in, in wastewater, uh, which Aaron English will talk about in a minute, but, but uh, water and conservation, energy use. Uh, this is that dream client uh, that, that you get to work with that makes a legacy project for this region. So I'm really happy to be a part of it. I'll pass it on to Aaron to continue talking about it. Thanks. Thanks, Kenneth. This is Aaron English with Biohabitats. And um, I'm a water resources and chemical engineer based here in Santa Fe. Our offices um, have been under the purview of Biohabitats for about 12 years. And before that, since 1989, we were part of Natural Systems International a small consulting firm here in Santa Fe that's focused on natural wastewater treatment solutions. So we've been around this area for, for over 30 some years, uh, really looking at the way that water um, as is such a valuable part of life, uh, an infinitely valuable 
you know, important resource that we have to be able to live here and continue to live here in uh, this part of the Southwest. Um, as a consulting engineer, I also feel really fortunate in being able to live here in New Mexico, but work all over the country and then also internationally on this idea of natural systems for managing water, you know, nature-based solutions for managing wastewater, stormwater, gray water, rainwater, and also bringing those into uh, the high-performance architecture and building realm. Um, and so we have had um, great success over the years of helping our clients find uh, deeply sustainable and ideally regenerative ways of managing water from either individual buildings or small communities uh, with a focus on simplicity and on you know, water reuse and really that respect of water from an infrastructure perspective. And so um, you know, our clients have ranged from everything from like the large kind of you know, corporate tech giants like Google, Facebook, YouTube, Amazon, um, where we've gotten to help them you know, leverage water sustainability to you know, numerous high performance living buildings that treat and reuse all of their water, all the way to this particular client and project here in New Mexico with Modern Elder who stands with those same firms, I think, honestly, in terms of the ethos, uh, maybe even I would say beyond, <laughs> right? In terms of how Modern Elder is approaching this property with such sensitivity. And so these are the kind of projects we really focus on. And in fact, they are our focus. Um, we don't, as a firm, condone greenfield development. We don't take a lot of standard development projects. We really do like to select the work we we, ta we tackle with the idea of you know building in resilience and sustainability and respect for water. And so I'll echo what what Sean and Kenneth here have said about working with Modern Elder. It's it's a joy to come in to a project with a client who has expectations that are so you know good in terms of what they want to do with the water and who 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 take the advice and the you know the input from this this team as well. Thanks, Aaron. Jan. Well, hello, John, and, and hello to the Galisteo community. Thank you for giving us the platform to uh, greet our neighbors. My name is Jan Bird, and uh, my background is growing, started out growing up on a ranch in Baja, Mexico, in an environment uh, receiving about six inches of annual rainfall. So, you know, drylands environment feels like my home, and uh, this, this ranch is located in a very pristine nature area. And that experience gave me a profound love of nature that led me to study uh, environmental science, looking for, you know, for solutions to the, the degradation that, that I was perceiving, you know, in the world around me. So um, what, what kind of landed for me in my studies in college and learning about soil science and water, water science and atmospheric science and ecology and all of those things was the pivotal role that uh, that soils and that agricultural land management uh, have on the well-being of our planet and um, of our society and our you know our economic base? So I kind of uh, took that into a direction of learning from the best uh, masters in the field of regenerative land management that I could. And I ended up finding this system called holistic management. Um, that that really deals with the, um, the the management of grasslands in 
uh, semi-arid and arid environments and how we can use uh, livestock and grazing animals to, to regenerate those environments. So uh, I've been working with the Modern Elder Academy for about three years now, uh, starting out on, on uh, one of their projects in, uh, in Baja, Mexico. And uh, like some of the others here have, have said, it was really their ethos around regeneration on all levels, including of, of the soil and of the land that sustains us that made me excited to, uh, to work with them. And this, uh, this Saddleback property, I think, is a perfect platform and opportunity to do good by being land stewards. So uh, what we're looking at is, um, is regenerating the grasslands. And, and I'm really excited to have the opportunity to share what that means and how we intend to go about it with some of your listeners. So I'll, I'll wait until we get to that point. Fantastic. Thanks. Skylar, did you want to say anything? I feel like they really, they really covered it. I mean, the, the water going into this has been uh, a key point prior to even acquisition of this. And so, mm. you know, really, really just being aware of, of the, the land and the environment, this, this region, uh, it was, it was very front of mind of what, what can we do to, minimize our use, but also what can we do to actually be uh, part of something that's helping to replenish and restore and sort of take it beyond that. And, and that's where we've really enjoyed working with this team that, that we've been able to challenge to, to explore those solutions. And they've challenged us to say, you know, these are the ways that we can, we can do that. So uh, we're, we're very aligned in that focus. All right. First of all, Skylar uh, uh, MEA has obviously put together a really uh, a heavy hitting team here uh, with regard to the subject of water and conservation. And um, I guess also just uh, maintaining the historic nature of, of the area that you're in. Let's just kick off. I mean, what, as you pointed out, water's, water's the, the word here. So for everybody, uh, do you believe that Northern New Mexico is currently in a severe drought if yes, what's the outlook? If not, what's the outlook? What are, you, what are your feelings about it? I can tackle that one first. This is Erin. Um, I don't have feelings about it. I, I can see the data, which shows that uh, we are in a, in a drought and we've been in a drought. And one thing I will say is that I think if there's a, a place for pattern recognition here, it's that this is an arid environment where there is no normal or otherwise could be said the normal is there is no normal <laughs> um, in terms of, of our climate and our rainfall. And, and that this, this place, at least for the last couple of thousands of years, has you know, a history of periods of drought. That is just how it is here. With future casting and looking toward a, a climate future for New Mexico, for the Galisteo Basin, I think that there remains some uncertainty, but it seems that there's an outlook that says that we will continue to see precipitation. We may see more extreme events in terms of rainfall, and we also will see um, potentially higher evapotranspiration rates, so more you know, use of water for, for plants because of warming. Um, we may also see some reduced snowpack, which tends to slowly release our water into our reservoirs and our rivers in the spring, that that pattern may shift. And so certainly we've been experiencing drought 
that is not unusual. It won't, you know, that will continue to happen sometimes for sure. And everything that we've been doing with Modern Elders has been looking toward that current reality and that, that future reality. Okay. Anyone else? I'll just add that this is Jan Bird. Um, I'll just add that uh, when we're looking at regenerative land management, you know, water is, is really uh, the key element that brings and sustains life on any piece of land. And so through the, the processes that we're uh, planning to implement there, uh, drought mitigation and building resilience through dry years is really one of the key outcomes that we're striving for. It's really the reason why we care and we, we believe it's, it's absolutely essential. It's imperative. It's a non-negotiable not to build uh, a drought resilient uh, landscape. And by landscape, I mean the whole ranch, not just you know uh, a designed landscape. And then also, as, as Aaron mentioned, in, um, in droughts, it's, uh, it's not that you just get you know three or four inches of rain every year instead of eight or 10 inches. It's that you know maybe you get one or two inches or three inches of rain for some years, and then you'll get a, a year with, with 15 or 20 inches. And sometimes it's those, those years, uh, those extraordinarily wet years that can actually, when the landscape is so dry and not prepared for it, cause problems with flooding, um, with erosion, and, and the land in that condition is unable to even take advantage of the bounty, which is a wet year. So one of the beautiful things about regenerating a grasslands and having a healthy grasslands is that we're building a giant sponge, essentially, that can absorb and infiltrate, you know, a massive rainfall event when it does come and uh, slowly, you know, release that water into the aquifer. Aaron, as the consulting engineer on this, have you, I guess, checked the 2019 through 2021 hydrology report from the state engineer's office? I haven't read that update okay. <laughs> uh, specifically. Did you have a specific question? About no, no. That? I just wanted, to, again, because uh, my next question is really dealing with something that you mentioned about modeling and future modeling. So I was wondering if you're familiar with what the current status is and um, uh, being able to project forward. I guess the related to that is, have you done uh, or do you have any aquifer test models? Um, just John, just to, to jump in on that, um, sure. as part of our, as part of our design, uh, uh, development package, um, we are completing a comprehensive hydrology study. So fully comprehensive, we've completed 72 hour tests on the two wells that we're, that we're using for the Academy. So just full context here for, for a second, just to go high up there, there are 14 wells on site, uh, right. with a total of 51 acre feet of, of water, water rights amongst those. For the academy, we are focused on two specific wells. There's two properties. There's Drogheda and there's uh, Chamisa. Each of those has an existing well with a three-acre foot designation uh, per year. Mm -hmm. um, and so those wells will continue to be the wells that we'll use for, uh, for the academy with no change to those. So what we've done uh, as part of the hydrology study, the first part is a 72-hour pumping test on each of those wells. So you, you're, you're pumping it straight for 72 hours. You see how much drawdown there is uh, to the well. So how much the water, the water lowers. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I think in my layman terms, that's, that's the, the accurate one. And then, mm -hmm. and then how long it takes for it to uh, refill or replenish back to that level. 
Um, so we just completed the second one of those for, for Chamisa. We'll have all that data. The, the short note or answer is that it was very positive in terms of the amount of Good. water in both of those. The Dragil, just to clarify, that, would more than cover all of the water for the total uh, uh, need. And the, the Chamisa one, the total drawdown in 72 hours was 0.37 inches. So it actually barely even moved, which mm -hmm. was indicating a, a, robust, a robust amount of water. You know, all of that, of course, is before any of the wastewater, the water harvesting, all of the other items that we're looking to replenish it. But just on that, that overarching element there. And we'll have all of that data that's public and will be available. Fantastic. Okay. And that that's with, if within the next weeks or months or? Uh, middle of the month or so. Uh, exactly. So it's, call it the end of the month by the time we, we, we finalize it. But yeah, in the next few weeks. Okay. And based on that, I mean, ahead of that, did you have any kind of projected model for use within the facility? Uh, yes, yes. Within, uh, we're right around five acre feet per year, uh, combined for the two properties for the Dragita and the Chamisa. Um, that's on a gross basis. So that's prior again to water harvesting. That's prior to any of the wastewater uh, elements, which I'd love for Kenneth and Aaron to speak about, about sure. what that results in terms of what's, what's reduced, because there's a distinction and Aaron, I'd love for you to clarify this between the gross usage and the consumptive use, which is the actual water that goes away, you know, as opposed to goes right back into the aquifer uh, to replenish uh, of that. So, you know, kind of roughly we're, we're around five acre feet uh, per year in total for that. So less than 10% of our uh, property rights for that. Kenneth or Aaron, did you want to follow up? Yeah, I can, I can comment on that. So at a high level, we've looked at this, this, property and particularly the academy which is the the two buildings the two facilities um as you know as a water cycle and and with the idea that we are in a place here where first and foremost water conservation is the first thing we do for these types of facilities so that means you know water efficiency with all of the plumbing fixtures in the selection and then also changing the minds of the people who use the place right towards water efficient behavior, which is just as important as putting water efficient fixtures in there. <laughs> um, and so, you know, bringing that awareness around the, the place that we are in and the, the way that water here should be cared for. Um, and, and then investing in the infrastructure systems to ensure that the water that is used um, is cleaned and is returned, you know, back to the place from which it came while also using the opportunity of the rooftops that we have uh, to catch water when it does fall and to design the landscape, which Kenneth can speak more toward, uh, to absorb water when it does rain also. We are designing a water reuse system so that we can offset most, if not all of the irrigation on the property with recycled water, with recycled wastewater or with harvested rainwater so that we're not using you know, groundwater for that use. Um, what Skylar was speaking about, this idea of consumptive use, um, is actually gonna be very minimal here because consumptive use is considered that water that you don't get back, if you will. I mean, ultimately all water is yeah, indestructible. It all goes around <laughs> and comes back in some form or another, maybe somewhere else sometimes. But in this case, you know, we would expect some consumptive water use from you know, some of the, some cooking, um, you get a little bit of losses from you know, people 
filling bottles and things like that. But, you know, in, in this case, really the only consumptive use on the property is irrigation. And in that case, we're meeting that with recycled or harvested water. And then we're putting you know, clean water back, back into the ground. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Music and information from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener-supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on our Patreon support button to become an active supporting member of Radio Free Galisteo. And, then, and that's uh, also thinking about it seasonally. In the winter, our, our landscapes will not need as much of that water that has been treated. And so the idea is that that wastewater gets uh, recharged even at an even higher rate back uh, to the aquifer. So for our side, of course, uh, we are considering, we're not you know, planting a bunch of hostas and uh, thirsty water-loving plants everywhere. Uh, we're, we're Santa Fe landscape architects, and so we're, we're learning uh, from the land and what's growing there now. And, and a lot of it is really about just bringing that together. And then in some special areas, courtyards, et cetera, we might have some more color, but our focus is dominantly on natives. Uh, and of course, you know, drip systems, high efficiency drip systems to mm-hmm. uh, really control irrigation. If there's a big storm, we don't want irrigation systems coming on. So we can use smart technology to uh, control those uh, sorts of things uh, to really mitigate our water uh, use as well. And like Aaron said, we're doing combinations of, of both the wastewater and potentially uh, roof runoff from stormwater events, uh, that's still all developing. We're trying to figure out what that balance model is. Um, mm. And so we're working hand in hand. Aaron and I have worked on uh, uh, numerous projects together. Uh, and and so we will collaborate this way to find out, well, what's our number? Where, where are we going to be from a wastewater generation standpoint? Okay, let's dial the landscape down to really fit this as best as possible. Um, so we really can try to meet uh, you know this, this equation to creating a water balance uh, in each of the landscapes of the academy. Having said that, have you already developed your projected usage models for, for at, at a minimum of these two facilities? I We have not. We've we've done some gross level numbers, which I'm not going to be able to rattle off to you out of my head. Sure. Um, but it, it's because we're, we're just starting design development. So yeah. we're really, we don't have individual planting symbols to start to calculate. We've got 30 shrubs over here and five perennials and these, this many trees. And but we do know what each of those um, might require from a, from a water use perspective. And so as we, as we get further along, that's where this, this collaboration, collaboration, you know, goes into full drive um, with biohabitats to really um, figure out what that, that balance can be. Um, and I'm uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Do you want to finish? No, no. Well, I was just also going to point to say uh, back to, to Jan's comments about the grasslands we also see a lot of benefit to uh, restoring, you know, when, when construction happens, we're going to have some disturbance of the site around the perimeter of this, these structures. Uh, and so we do want to mitigate and control erosive issues. Uh, and sometimes that's going to take a little bit more water to get some establish, establishment going. So we do a lot of breakdowns between temporary irrigation and standard irrigation systems as well, so that we're really mindful about what, what is this area going to be from a water use perspective for, for one, two, or three years to really get establishment going? 
versus the things that just need their sort of standard regimen of, of water. And Skylar, I mean, to be fair, you guys mm-hmm. aren't really even planning to be kicking off until 2023, right? Correct. Correct. And so, and so the numbers, the, the five acre feet, I mean, that's a, that's not a, you know, sort of pie in the sky. That's a, a, a fairly good estimated number. And then we'll get the specific one as, you know, Kenneth pointed to in terms of these are the specific types of plants. These are the elements that we have, but that's a, a very a high confidence number. Uh, just a few other points to, to, to piggyback on what they were saying. You know, one, this is a great area to just leave as much of the landscape just natural as it is, as we can. And so we're really focusing on minimizing the disturbed areas there uh, and mm. leaving the rest as it is. Frankly, that's how we want it because that's part of the appeal and the, and the allure of being on site is being in this wild, you know, authentic environment, not in something that's manicured and curated. And, 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 and that's why surroundings is so compelling because they, they get that. Um, the other, the other piece, and this is, this is more abstract because the numbers start to get very big. Um, we're somewhere around four square miles for the total site, uh, which is a, a crazy number to think about how big it is. Um, one inch of water over a square mile is something like 17 million gallons that, 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 that generates. Mm. And so when you, you know, the question, which was a great question, which you heard before was, you know, how can you regenerate that land? Um, yeah. On a small amount of, of water, if you're talking four square miles, 17 million gallons for one inch um, per, per square mile, um, that's over 50 million gallons. I, I know I'm doing the math wrong. I'm not going to try and uh, get that. But the point being, and I'd love for Jan to talk about this, mm. as we're shifting from dirt where it runs off to grasslands where it's that sponge going into the aquifer, it has the potential to have a substantial positive impact from that side, you know, separate from the academy on, on what that water is that goes into that. And Jan, um, as, as you follow up on that, um, you know, uh, I think being able to, to speak to the, um, uh, the regenerative livestock uh, model you were talking about, I think uh, being able to define that a little bit better would be uh, really uh, helpful and uh, fascinating, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. I I share the fascination, so happy to talk all day about it. Um, you know, the one of the key words here is desertification, and um, a healthy grasslands should have greater than ninety percent of the ground covered by uh, living plants. You know, so the crowns of grasses, and not just grasses, but forbs and legumes, and um, in you know in in the a healthy short grass prairie, which is the environment that uh, that we're in, there's uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of species of different plants that make up the healthy uh, plant community. And so, what you know, what we're observing on site now, um, as the site that we're inheriting, is um, I would say less than fifty percent of the ground is currently uh, covered by living plants the rest of that ground is just bare dirt. And if you think of a desert, you know, you think of, of sand and on dirt with no, with no plants growing. So desertification is, is really what's happening across, um, say almost half of the, of the earth's surface is uh, semi-arid or arid grasslands. And it's losing its ground cover and, and turning into this bare dirt process. So, um, what, you know, what happens when, 
what happens when it rains onto bare dirt, that dirt crusts up and the water tends to run off the surface and it'll run, you know, straight into the wash, usually carrying a lot of, of sediment in the topsoil with it, creating, you know, these kind of uh, flood, alternating flood drought cycles. Meanwhile, the whole ground underneath stays dry and, uh, and isn't even, isn't even making effective use of the little rainfall um, that there is. So when we're talking regeneration, um, the, the real key is restoring that grass ground cover. And the tool that enables us to do that are grazing animals. Hmm. Yeah. And it, and that, you know, that can be uh, cows, bison, horses, sheep, llamas, camels, you know, you name it, all kinds of grazing animals. Alpacas. <laughs> alpacas, everything but alpacas. <laughs> so, the, you know, all kinds of grazing animals have co-evolved with the grasslands. And uh, when they're managed in the right way, and that's what holistic management is all about, when they're managed in the right way, um, with the goal of restoring that ground cover and restoring there, thereby restoring the grasslands, um, what we get back is a ground cover and a landscape that's able to absorb um, all of the rainfall. Some numbers to throw out at you are, you know, a, a bare ground or or let's say a uh, a ground that's around thirty percent uh, covered in in uh, living grasses is maybe able to absorb, um, and it, it definitely varies. So this is not like an on-site measurement, but somewhere in the range of an eighth of an inch or a half an inch per hour uh, of rainfall. So anything greater than that, you know, it runs off and it runs away. When you have uh, a land that's dominantly covered by living grasses, um, we see infiltration rates of eight inches or 10 inches per hour. I mean, really, you can just pour bucket after bucket on the ground and it just soaks right in. Um, so it's a complete change in the hydrological function um, of the land. And so touching back on some of the numbers that Skylar was coming up with, you know, the 17 million uh, gallons per inch per, uh, per square mile, what we're looking at there over the four square miles is uh, somewhere around 70 million gallons um, of water per inch that's 215 acre feet roughly mm -hmm. um, you know the 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 long-term you know pre-drought average annual rainfall in the galisteo basin you know somewhere around eight to ten inches i think over the last 20 years from the data that i've been gathering i think um you know we'd be lucky to be averaging five inches so right. less less than half um, and interestingly, I'll just throw out there, that is still so site specific. You know, I've, what I'm seeing is that it, it's raining on one side of the highway and not on the other. Sure. So, yeah. you know, maybe there was areas that got 15 inches this year in the basin and others that still only got five. Um, but still, even in a drought year, you know, one of the questions I'm hearing is, well, how, how can you grow anything? How can you grow grass or regenerate anything if it doesn't rain? And that's a very valid point. If it didn't rain at all, we wouldn't be able to do anything, you know, very frankly. But the reality of the matter, thankfully, is, is that as dry as it is, it's still raining a few inches. 
And mm -hmm. man, as long as we get three or four inches in a season, we can grow some grass. Um, and so, it, you know, looking at those numbers, just considering one inch, if, if only one, one out of those additional, uh, sorry, if only one out of those total of five inches of rain that falls in a drought year is soaking into the ground where otherwise it wouldn't have, then we're back to those 70 million gallons or 215 um, acre foot numbers. So, you know, there's a little bit more clarification on uh, those numbers of water and whatnot. And um, if you'd like, I'm happy to go more into, you know, how it works with the livestock and kind of what we're thinking about with that program as well. I, I think, yeah, actually, my follow up was, how do you do it with the livestock? It's, it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, hey, we're going to have grasslands because we put livestock there. How does that work exactly that you're you're going to then as a follow up have more vegetation just because the livestock wants to eat it and, and that's me not understanding what the process is no it's a, and it's a great question because clearly there's livestock all over the place and there's also desertified grasslands all over the place so right. there there needs to be some difference and what that difference that change really comes down to is uh, the pattern of movement and herd concentration that we employ as livestock managers. Um, so what, you know, what we typically find on ranches um, all over the world at this point, this is the widespread practice, is some sort of continuous or set stock grazing where you have uh, whatever your herd size is on, it's free that those animals are free to wander around the same paddock for um, either all season long or at least at least a few months before they're moved to another paddock. Um, and what that creates is a low density of livestock that is able to go around selecting their favorite plants to eat all the time. Um, and in the growing season, when uh, when a grass is grazed down, there's uh, a period of a few weeks time when the grass needs to draw off of its root reserves of energy, the stored energy in the roots to start to regrow. Now, at some point, depends on the species of grass, but let's say uh, two or three weeks after uh, regrowth starts. So, um, and you can imagine a grass grazed down to uh, three or four inches in height, you know, maybe several weeks later, it's up to eight or 10 inches. Now at that point, the grass has enough leaf surface. Those are its solar panels to be producing enough food, not only to, to start to fuel its further growth, but also to rebuild some of those root energy reserves. Now what happens when, uh, your livestock is in the same place, uh, for, for many weeks and many months during the growing season is like I said, they'll come and eat their favorite plants, the best, which are usually the best and highest quality grasses. And then uh, about a week later, sometimes as little as four days later, you'll start to get that first regrowth and the regrowth is pure leaf, man. It's succulent, green, fresh, tender. And so the livestock is going to come back around for a second bite. And then uh, they'll go away and they'll eat something else. And then a few days, a week later, they'll come around and they'll have a third bite. 
So what that means is those grasses are getting hammered um, again and again, using up their root energy reserves. And over a long period of time, what happens is that that plant gets exhausted and at some point it gives up. Um, it shrivels up, it dies, you know, maybe something uh, hardier comes and will grow in its place at some point, something that the livestock aren't as, uh, aren't as into eating. But over a period of time, um, those, those spaces that were formerly, formerly occupied by a living plant uh, end up turning into that bare dirt. And so the reverse, uh, the reverse process and the change that we're talking about is instead of leaving your livestock um, free to graze the same area for such a long time, and again, it really matters the most during the growing season as when the grass is dormant, you know, not, not much is happening in terms of growth. So uh, the change that we're after is limiting the amount of time that the animals are in any, in any one paddock so that they only get one bite on the plant and they can graze it down pretty hard. That's not a problem. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll basically not let the animals be longer than uh, three or four days in any one paddock during the growing season. Then we move them off to another part of the ranch and we'll let that piece of ground rest for, uh, for one, maybe even two years. And that's the second piece of, of how, of, of how this works is giving the land a very long rest period. And that enables all of the plants that were grazed to uh, go through their entire life cycle rebuild their root energy reserves and go to seed. So once the plant goes to seed, mm. it's, it's uh, casting off seeds that are going to land into those bare dirt areas. Um, and the other, the other interesting part about this is, um, is that in order to, uh, to be able to limit the amount of time that uh, the animals are in any one area, and give those areas such a long rest period, we have to create a much denser herd than is standard. So we got to group all the animals together. Um, and when you do that, another cool thing happens is that they get less selective about what they're eating. So they're, they're going to start grazing a wider variety of the plants there. Um, and the distribution of their hoof, manure, and urine impact is much more even and thorough across the piece of land. So what do we have? We have basically living machines that are very lightly uh, tilling and leaving little hoof divots and on an otherwise kind of flat crusted bare soil. Now that crust gets broken up and think of millions of little micro cups being, um, being chipped into the soil by hooves and then they're urinated and manured on. And then the seeds are able to fall in there and hold. And that little bit of, of cup can hold some water and moisture that now can soak in where it wouldn't before. And we've created the, the conditions that the grasses and the other plants require for them to be able to germinate and come back. Then we move the animals off and give it a long enough rest period. And that's, you know, that's basically how, how it happens. And I was really curious uh, when uh, this was first brought up in the uh, 
community meeting mm -hmm. that we had uh, just a bit ago. Uh, so I really appreciate that thorough explanation of uh, the process. And uh, I think it'll be very enlightening to anybody who's listening. Yeah, my, uh, my pleasure. I'll just add that, you know, we're really excited to to share this with the community. So, you know, personally, I can't wait to be able to have more contact with people and um, and show them physically, you know, what we're doing and how it works. Of course, one of the questions is theory versus seeing this in practice play out. And, mm -hmm. and one of the things that that I was personally impressed with was some of the photos that Jan showed of, of other very uh low rain desert environments where you saw the before and the after of the grass for that comparative measure. So Jan, I don't know if you very quickly want to touch on where that was or the context for, for that. You know, it's, it's happening all over the world. Um, I'll use the opportunity to mention that right here in, in New Mexico, um, there's a lot of innovation and, and thought and practice leadership happening in this field of holistic management, holistic ranch management and grazing. Um, there's, the, uh, the Holistic Management International is based in Albuquerque. Uh, Kavira Coalition is an, a fantastic organization based in Santa Fe. Um, and there's all kinds of ranches, you know, right here in New Mexico that are doing that. One awesome one is the Carrizo Valley Ranch run by Sid Goodlow. That's over in uh, north, just north of Capitan. Um, and so, you know, we have very local examples to look at, uh, as well as examples from afar in Africa. In the, some of the pictures you saw, Skylar, were from uh, ranches down in Chihuahua yep. in, North, in uh, northern Mexico. And I'll also throw out that there's uh, the Audubon Society has an Audubon, it's called the Audubon Conservation Ranch Program. And the Audubon Society being all about birds, you know, they have they have seen, they, they figured out or saw that a healthy grasslands is such an amazing habitat for so many birds and that ranchers really hold the key to be able to restore and preserve good bird habitat. Um, so that's another interesting place for people to look into examples. Real quick, Jan, you said you're eager to share this with the community. And I, I was going to put that out as a question, uh, both with regard to Jan, the, the regeneration piece that you're speaking to, but as a whole, whatever you come up with at uh, uh, MEA and Saddleback Ranch, uh, is that something you'd be willing to share with uh, the Galisteo community at large as far as new methods and or successes? Oh, definitely. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the, we, four square miles is, is a small piece of land. It turns out, you know, sort of in the area. So one of the, one of the big opportunities or areas that 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 we really want to explore is how can we test something out that then can be e expanded into the the, the, the Galisteo Basin and other areas. So we're very, very open source in terms of what we're planning to do, the data on that, all of the above, so that and vice versa, so that we can learn from some of the others that, that Jan Jan mentioned so that we can all, you know, collectively look at how we're we're rolling this out. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. Okay. Again, with regard to planning and future planning, you're also planning on having uh, home plots throughout the throughout this this um, four square miles you have. How does that impact or change what we're talking about right now? Because mm -hmm. at the moment we're talking about the two facilities for the 
uh, MEA, but once you start putting homes in there, and I, you, you know, obviously the number has has been thrown back and forth, and anywhere from twenty six to forty. What does that do to any of this calculation? Sure. So, so just a few comments on that to to begin with. First and foremost, hundred percent focused on the academy, and that and that's the only piece that we've looked at uh, in terms of design development or or anything with the site, and so. You know, the, the balance of the site, aside from the regenerative grazing, um, while there are development rights, we have not um, looked at, you know, what that design is or what that plan is. Mm. What we do know is at least 75% and probably 90 plus percent of the site will be preserved as open space for grazing, for trails, for all of those elements. It's fundamental to the regenerative grazing, so it wouldn't have any, whatever we do ever on the site wouldn't have any impact in terms of changing that. It's important for trail systems, for access for the academy. Part of that's gonna be open to the to the public as well um, in, in the future through open trails. We're looking at how we can work with some of the local land trusts for parts of that land as well to preserve that into perpetuity. So, you know, in terms of overall, whatever, Whatever happens on the site beyond that, which we're going to you know, very much work closely with Galisteo and workshops and learning about the site before we even look into what that development is. So it would be a very involved process, but we will minimize our, our development areas and maximize open space as, as a top priority. I mean, that's, that's going to be essential for that. So it wouldn't have any change to this plan this plan's going to to happen well before because uh, we're starting on this now uh, mm-hmm. in terms of of implementing this. We'll be adjusting the fencing and doing things that will be permanent changes to that to um, to support that. Sean, thank you for being so patient because we's we've sort of left you off to the side there, but uh, we have about five minutes left, and I I wanted to throw a question out as. Uh, uh, to you with regard to the historic nature of that land that that uh, uh, MEA is on and uh, and future development. What are some of the? Are there any particular archaeological issues that you're going to come across, or you think you're going to come across, uh, with regard to developing there? When we first started talking to MEA, we were really thrilled that they had already done their homework on that, and they've commissioned an archaeological study of the property. And so we're paying very close attention to that and steering clear of any sensitive sites. In terms of the way that the buildings are designed, we've been studying, and we've been studying this for you know the um, nearly two decades we've been practicing in New Mexico, studying development patterns, um, you know, the, how to build on the land so that we are as light on the land as we can be. So that, and we're looking at the buildings being regenerative tools as well, Mm -hmm. that they will generate enough power for themselves, that we are working in close coordination with Aaron and Kenneth on plumbing fixtures to minimize water usage and that 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 water is reused and regenerated into the aquifer as we've discussed. So the building is very much part of this system, systemic way of thinking and understanding the landscape. Uh, that we do see as as an historic and treasured place. We're honored to to add another layer. Um, John, if go, I could just ahead. add a moment on yeah. that, the, the cultural yeah. element uh, of sites is 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 very important and very complicated for for this site. So, as Sean mentioned, 
we commissioned a, a, an overview, a study of, to identify where those sites are uh, mm -hmm. located. And then specific for the academy, we went and did a, a very in-depth study that's um, confirming everywhere that we are disturbing is, is not in, in any way tied to cultural elements. There are cultural sites on, on property and it, there's a tension there. This property has been closed off really from anyone from the, for, for 20, 30 years, uh, including yeah. from the indigenous community. And so one of the first things that we did in the spring was invite, invite some people from the indigenous community to come back to access those sites and to see that, which, which they hadn't been able to for a long time. As we move forward, there is a, a very important tension in terms of preserving those and keeping those private so that they are honored and there's, there's not risk of them being disturbed, while at the same point providing access uh, to the indigenous community since it, it has that direct connection through their heritage. And so that's something that's going to be very important for us in how we do that in terms of preserving and not you know, sort of telegraphing things, but also providing access that hasn't been provided in the past. Thanks for elaborating on that. That's uh, that's really good to hear. Well, we have a very little time left. How about if uh, we just go around the horn here and everybody kind of give me your your last thoughts uh, on uh, on the subject today, which I guess primarily is development and water and regeneration. So, uh, Sean, do you want to start? Sure, I'll just uh, kind of continue the the, the last uh, statement I made. You know, when we when we design. Um, either new places or, or, pre, or preservation or rehabilitation of, of older places, we're very cognizant of the history of this. And, and we do see it as, as continuing, continuing the, the, the stewardship and, and maintenance of these places that, that our work is, is, as I said, another layer, but very much in keeping with, with what's come before to make sure that the, the very greatest qualities of this extraordinarily beautiful property uh, continue on for generations and generations to come. Uh, Kenneth. Yeah, yeah, as I had said earlier, this is a, one of those legacy projects that uh, as a design firm, you, they don't come around very often. And, and for us to be a part of this and, and, and also to be a part of a team that uh, I have relationships with on multiple projects, right, to this region. So we have a, a very just, I think, a beautiful synchronicity and collaborative spirit it really binds us all together with the bonus that we have this amazing client group. And, uh, and so I just really look forward to the future and helping to be the guide of the you know, stewardship of this land with this team, with the clients and with Galisteo community. Aaron. I appreciate Modern Elders approach here to sensitivity with water. And what gets me excited is that their visitors, their staff, their guests will hopefully come away recognizing that, that what they're creating is a model for how, how to treat water well in this kind of climate. And I hope that, that that ripples out just as much as some of the other things that they're, they're bringing with these modern elders, right, that they're developing. So I feel, I feel good about the approach and, and the sensitivity around this water infrastructure and think that it's something that, that is notable enough, it, 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 it will shift some perspectives. Thanks, Jan. I'd just like to say thank you for being interested and for caring to ask the questions that you're asking and point again to the Kavira Coalition in Santa Fe as they're just such a great source of inspiration. Uh, and, uh, you know, until we're out there sharing more, like check out what they're doing. Um, we are following their lead. 
if you could send me a, a link to them and I'll, I'll pop it up there on the uh, podcast link when this goes live. Yeah, you got it. Thanks. Sky, Lur. <laughs> I went by Sky as a kid, so I, I answer yeah. to that. No, yeah. no problem. Well, first, Johnny, thank you so much for, for having us on this. And I mean, it's, it's just been a, a great conversation throughout the, the Galisteo community that we've had so many. And, and these, are, these are questions that are rightfully front of mind. You know, we're, we're creating an academy, and it's an academy where people are coming to repurpose, to regenerate themselves. And the place that we create is a place through which that happens. And so it's just as, it's just as essential that we're using that place uh, you know, and, and, and regenerating that place for that. The other thing is we're going to be here for a very, very long time. You know, we're, we're looking at you know, this, is our, this is our destination, our headquarters. This is where a multi-decade sort of commitment that we're having here. So water is as important to us for that and, and ensuring that we're responsible for uh, or with it and that we're creating as much as we can uh, more of that is is critical to our success just as much so we're excited to to continue to to have that dialogue to to share our plans um, because we do think that it's very complementary with with what the surrounding area uh, ultimately can do well, thank you, Skylar. And I, I want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time out today to be on the show. Uh, I know the, the community is very eager to learn more about this process. And I think uh, you've certainly gone a, a good measure forward in helping explain some of your process and hopefully developing techniques that can be adopted throughout the community here. So thank you very much. Thank you, thank you John. You've been listening to Skylar Skikos, Sean Evans, Kenneth Francis, Aaron English, and Jan Bird working for the Modern Elder Academy's development on the Saddleback Ranch. And for Radio Free Galisteo, I'm John Shannon. Radio Free Galisteo is listener supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on our Patreon support button to become an active supporting member of Radio Free Galisteo.